The title of our message today is going to be Spiritual Warfare, Satan Disarmed at the Cross. So if you have a Bible, if you turn to Colossians 2, and we're going to read verses 6 through 15. Colossians 2, 6, Paul writes, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. Amen. And let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, we're all gathered here before you, and I just ask, as Scott said, Father, that you would just speak to us through your spirit and just make your, your word, your voice, alive through the word that we hear today and just help us to use that to walk with you closer and to be more faithful to you and to see you glorified in our lives in the future and we thank you that you'll do that for us father in jesus name we pray amen so just like a brief overview of colossians i'm not going to go through a whole book overview but but they were basically just regular people you know they were sheep farmers they raised crops they dyed wool for a living but they believed, as many cities did and people back in that day and age, that they were subject to the activity of supernatural forces in the unseen world that either caused them to prosper or to suffer misfortune. They were really conscious of evil spirits, which, by the way, most of the world is except our Western culture here in America. And we tend to look at everything as having a scientific answer that can be explained. So much of their religious lives was geared or designed to ward off evil spirits or call on good spirits and angels to come to their aid, to help them out. And so the Jews and the pagans both, so they've done research into all that and read writings at the time. They know what was going on, but they were both involved in this folk magic. And that's what Paul kind of addresses here in this epistle, which we're not going to address, but they would be involved in purity regulations, these humiliation rituals, magic rites, getting involved in mystery cults and angel worship. And like I said, they were like a lot of cities in ancient world at the time. You know, when we went over to Rome, Lisa and I, one of the most amazing things you'll see if you ever get over there is the Pantheon. And you walk in that place and it's got light coming in and it's like amazing. And they say it's one of the most well-preserved structures from back in that day because it has always remained in use up to this day. But Pantheon, 
the word pan means all and theo means gods. So it's a place you worship all gods. And that's the way those people <laughs> worshiped back then. They weren't going to put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. They worshiped all the gods. And they all thought different gods had different powers. And so that's what's going on with these believers in Colossae. So they've been all their lives worshiping these other gods that were there, and they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they're thinking, it's like, well, why can't we just continue to wear this amulet around our neck so that the gods and the angels will give us protection from evil spirits? And we'll also, though, worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just add him in. And that's not uncommon even today. I took a missions class they were saying that over in China, and this happens in Africa too, but in China, those people there, their culture is steeped in the worship of their ancestral gods. And most people in their homes, they have a little shrine set up Well, they will worship the gods of their ancestors, and it just keeps getting passed down, passed down, and passed down. And so to go in there as a missionary and an evangelist and tell these people to get rid of those gods, that's, they've done this for centuries ever since they can remember, and get rid of them, they're afraid to do that. Because in their minds, if they don't give worship to these gods, they will come back and do them harm. And that's a real test of their faith for new believers, to get rid of those gods. So that's what's going on here in Colossae. That's what Paul is dealing with. So we're talking about spiritual warfare in spirits. And it happens all the time where people want to take Jesus and add other forms of religion or else add him to the forms of religion. And it's known as syncretism. That's what it's known as, the technical name. So you see that if you look, and we're in Colossians 2, look down in verse 18. And Paul tells them there, he says, let no man beguile you of your reward. And, and here's these different types of religious worship they would get in, in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. And then if you go down to verse 20, he writes, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments, and that word really means elemental spirits of the world. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things indeed have a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the flesh, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. They're tempted and men are coming into the church and trying to get them to add other worship. Inspired by these spirits, doctrines of devils, to get them to add to just the simplicity of the faith in Christ. But the theme of the letter of Colossians is, he's trying to tell them, you don't need all that stuff. You don't need to worry about all these spirits that are in the world that you've worshipped in the past and tried to appease. The theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ in all things. And what he's trying to do to teach them and us in this letter is that Jesus Christ is sufficient for every spiritual and practical need we will ever have. He's all we need, as the song goes that we sing. So they no longer need to fear these evil spirits or angels, the evil spirits, and they also don't need the good ones to pray to them and worship them to come to their aid because Jesus is supreme. And so we see, just 
go through a couple places. You look in chapter 1 and verse 13, and we talked about this before, that he tells them, he's delivered you from the powers of darkness. You don't have to fear them anymore or be subject to them. So look, in 1.13, he says here that Christ has delivered us, rescued us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And that word for power means authority. So he's telling them those evil spirits, the powers of darkness, no longer have authority over your lives to determine your destiny, to determine the quality of your life. Because as we said, they've been picked up out of that kingdom and transferred over into another one. So all of us as sinners, when we were in that kingdom of darkness, we were subject to the devil. And the world is today. And I thought Martin Lloyd-Jones had a good way of, of illustrating this taken from one kingdom to another. And he says, imagine this, that you see two big estates on either side with a road going down the middle. On one side of the road is one huge estate. On the other side of the road is another huge estate. And over here is the kingdom of darkness. And over here is the kingdom of God. And what happens, Christian men and women who were over here in this kingdom of darkness are literally, with the help of God, able to cross the road and get over into the other estate. Over here, we're in the kingdom of God. But Satan, he's still over here. All he is is across the road. And he comes up to the edge. And he thinks people are Christians, and most of them are, foolish enough to listen to what he says. They've been taken out of his kingdom, that road divides. But he gets up to the edge, and he makes his suggestions his insinuations, his attacks, and his onslaughts from on the other side. But here's what we need to remember. As Christians in this other kingdom, we are, by the Lord of our kingdom, guaranteed safety and victory. But we still have to fight, don't we? Even though we're guaranteed that. We still have to overcome and walk with God. But like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, as time goes on, and we should be knowing this if we've been saved 10, 15, 30 years or more, that kingdom over here and the devil, the lord of that kingdom, his suggestions and insinuations and fights and everything else should have less and less impact on us. We ought to see that he's more and more a defeated foe, not someone we have to live in fear of. You know, there was a time when you preached on... The devil has been stripped of his power. That was like an amen type sermon. And people were losing that. We, don't, we know it and we could quote it, but I don't know how much we really believe it. But he goes on to show, Paul does, so that's verse 13 in chapter 1, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. And this is critical too, as the sovereign creator. This is really, they consider this a hymn, verses 15 through 20. And Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth 
or things in heaven. So he's saying something here that would have been a bold statement to those people living in Colossae. So he's telling them, hey, the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing, he's making a statement right there for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, he says, the creator of heaven and earth. But he's telling these people, listen, he's not only the creator of heaven and earth, but he also created all spiritual beings. He's saying thrones and principalities, whether you can see them on earth or the invisible ones, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. So what's he telling them? He's saying all these spirits that you feared and worship, the Lord Jesus Christ created all of them. And he adds for him, for his pleasure. So think about that. And in verse 17, he says something that also is significant. He said he is before all things, and he's saying by him all things, all these things that he's created, whether it's things we see, whether it's me and you, or whether it's demonic spirits, it says by him all things consist. He is sustaining them. So if he's created these evil spirits and he is sustaining these evil spirits, he's saying all things are held together by his word. We know that. He could quit speaking his word and it'd all fall apart. You think you're a mess with your hair today? Man, if the Lord wasn't holding you together, you'd really be a mess, right? So hold together or exist. So if he's created these beings and by his power they have their existence owed to him, how can he not be in control of them? That's his point. That's what he's telling them. So you kind of put a few things together here, and Paul is telling these people, we just saw in verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ created all spiritual beings, everything that exists by his power in verse 16, and he holds it all together in his hand and by his word. That's verse 17. And we read in verse 15, that he's defeated them. It says he's having spoiled those principalities and power, made a show of them openly, verse 15, chapter 2, triumphing over them in it. And not only has he defeated them, he is over them. It says he is head over all. That's verse 10. And you are complete in him, which is the head over all principality and powers. So you think about that. We've talked about the works of the devil and the schemes of the devil. And you see in Colossians here, the Lord Jesus Christ created them all. He's in control of them all. He's defeated them all. And he is above and head of them all. They're under his feet. And by our union with him, whose else's feet are they under? But we've got to believe that and know that and experience that. So Paul would be asking them if Christ has defeated them, has created them, and is in charge of them, and they are inferior to him, why would you be subject to them? And he asks us the same thing in any sense. And he talks about their false teachings, spirits of fear, pride, anger, lust, or depression, works of sickness, division, and confusion. Why should a church or an individual be subject to any of that? unless we allow ourselves to be. That's what he's saying here. So a lot of people, they worry about, well, what can happen to my children? What forces out there are going to be after my children today when they're not around me? 
And what's he saying here? Jesus is the control of everything, isn't he? The forces that would destroy your children when they're not around, he controls all of that. They can't do anything to our kids. There are a lot of wicked people out there, right? People say, yeah. But what is our battle against? Is it against these wicked people? Haven't we read that over in Ephesians? It's against flesh and blood. And so what about our health? People worry about that. And what does it say in Acts 10, 38? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, anointed him with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good, healing all who what? Were oppressed of the devil. Sickness is from the devil. It's under the Lord's feet, isn't it? It should be under our feet. We've got to get back to that, the ABCs, right? I'll tell you one thing. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, there are a lot of texting demons out on the highways. And you see these accidents, and I mean, you drive by people and they're swerving all over the place. I mean, it's just a common, everyday occurrence. That is one law I would happily like to see them pass. All texting and is illegal totally while you're driving a vehicle. So do we have to be, though, afraid of these texting demons? out there that you just look up and here's some guy texting and isn't paying attention and he's coming right at you and bam, that's it? No. But we do need to pray, don't we? Deliver us from evil along with our daily bread. So that means daily we need to be praying at it. And God will, though, because like we're saying, the point is he's in control of all of that. They're subject to him. He is the head of it all. So <laughs> he wants the Colossians to know and he wants us to know that Christ alone is supreme the devil is not supreme he can't do to us just anything he wants to and what they needed to understand is what we need to understand that Jesus was not just one among many spirit rulers he wasn't just one that had power and here's all these other ones and they all kind of have equal power to one degree or another no it's not like that what he's trying to tell them is Jesus is supreme he is unlike totally unlike any other spiritual being. So look in chapter 1, verses 18, 19, 18 and 19. He said, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have first place, the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwells. And so he's saying the fullness of God lived dwelled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were struggling with this apparently. And that's kind of what he's trying to straighten out with them. They hadn't broken free from this fear and worship of these other angels and just trying to add Jesus into it. That was the culture of the day. And they actually have unearthed prayers. They, they find stuff that helps us understand what was going on and maybe why some of these letters are written. And so listen, it's almost funny, but here's a prayer that was unearthed in ancient Egypt to show you that these people would combine Christianity and other religions. And here's what this, how this prayer went. These are the names of these gods they're calling on, and they finally call on the Lord Jesus, as you'll hear. And here's how the prayer went. Hor, Hor, For, Eloi, Adonai, Eoah, Sabaoth, Michael, Jesus Christ. That's who all they call it, and then they end up by saying, help us in this household, Amen. So they've got all these pagan gods. They've got Michael the archangel, and they end it. They call on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they call on all of them. So they're not going to put all their eggs in one basket. Now, we want to make sure we got our bases covered. You know, Greg and I had a buddy that we tried to witness to, and he's like, 
big old God, he'd scratch his belly. He says, yep, I know what you guys are into, but I'm just not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm not going to just put it all in Christianity. I'm going to try a little bit over here, a little bit over there, because you might be wrong. I want to be safe. Well, there's no safety in that. And he's trying to tell him, hey, Jesus Christ is all you need. And they're trying to get their confidence that he reigns. He is supreme and he alone. Okay, I think we struggle with that more than we will admit. So nobody in here is going to admit to calling on pagan gods. We don't do that, invoking their names. But we have escape plans. In case the Lord Jesus somehow isn't supreme and doesn't come through. So we get in the boat just like the disciples to go on the other side. And when the devil gets his spirits to stir up the winds and the waves, so to speak, we cry out, ah, just like they did. We're crying out because the Lord seems to be asleep. And it seems like all these spirits are just overwhelming and having their way with us, right? And like they said, don't we say, don't you care that we perish all these promises? And look what's happening to me. This is a bad situation you're allowed to happen. <laughs> you know what happened when they did that? It said Jesus got up, probably wiped the sleep out of his eyes, and it says he rebuked the wind and spoke to the waves and said, be still. We don't speak to water doesn't hear you, as we've been taught, and rebuke the winds. He's rebuking those spirits. It's the same word rebuke that's when he rebuked the fever in, in Peter's mother. Listen, all those spirits were saying he has the preeminence. He is supreme. Didn't they all have to obey his word when he spoke to them? Because the next thing you read, it says, next second, it says there was a great calm. A great calm. They all had to submit to his word. And they still have to submit to his word. And he would look at us just like he looked at his disciples and ask, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Got to believe his word. He would say, don't you think that I am supreme? That's what it says in the Bible. Do you think that I would allow these demonic forces to destroy you if your heart's right with me? Ah, he says, trust me, I do care. Because that's what they asked him, don't you care? And he's like, I do care. That's what the Lord would say to us. So picking up on our text here, I kind of want to walk down through this text. We read starting in verse 6 in Colossians 2. And Paul says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And he says, he wants them to walk. In this new life, and what does he say? Make Jesus the Lord, the one and only, the Lord of your life. He wants them to walk that way. And he uses an agricultural term. He says you need to be rooted. Get your roots down deep in the teaching of Christ. And then he uses an architectural word, built up. Based on that foundation, grow. Grow on that foundation as you have been taught, he tells them. So he says, I want you to stay with these truths that I've been teaching you and that you learned about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is Lord. And then he goes on because he gives them a warning in light of that. In verse 8, that's what that is. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and empty 
deceit, after the tradition of men, after the, and here's that word for those elemental spirits, because those traditions of men come from those spirits and not after Christ. So he's saying we have to stay with what we've been taught. You have to beware, and the word is watch, see, have your eyes open, because there's going to be people coming in with their teachings that are designed by spirits to talk you out of what you know. Things that have no spiritual value, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And the ones he gives us there in 1 Timothy 4.1 are forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from certain foods. But the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Mark, that he made all foods clean. But there's religious people out there. I've met them. They'll tell you you can't eat pork and they'll try to put you under the Old Testament law or just a hundred variations on all that, right? Many false doctrines of men. Just turn on the TV and watch a TV preacher. Most of what you're going to hear is not good. That's why they're so popular. It can stay on the air. It's either empty or vain. And what it's designed to do is it's either going to talk you out of your trust with God or it's going to talk you out of a life of holiness is what you're going to hear. And that's what he's talking about. They're empty or vain. And he goes on to say in verse 9, For in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, he didn't just do that temporarily. He is forever the God-man for all eternity. It never stops. Forever the God-man. So what Paul is telling them there is, those other spiritual beings, they have power, but Jesus is fully God, fully man, but fully God. God is resident in him, and as one man said, what he's telling them is those other spirits are not in the same league. They're like a single A at best minor league team, and he's the major league everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him dwells God. He is God in bodily form. So you're not just worshiping some spirit that's even and on par with a bunch of other ones. We're back to he is supreme. And so what does that mean for us? Look in verse 10. He, he says, and so for you, for us, he says, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Because what's he saying? Who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit? The one that is fully God, the Lord Jesus Christ the fullness of God. And so it says we are complete in him. And literally the Greek is saying we have been filled. It's the word for fullness. We have been filled with him. In the fullness of God, we have in us through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have no need of any other spiritual help, do we? We have all the help we need living inside of us. Power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul prayed that we may know the love of God, he says, and thus to be filled with the fullness of God. So we've got to know that he loves us. He's not going to make us subject to evil powers. They can't have their way with us. That his power will be demonstrated on our behalf to give us victory over them. That's what he's telling them in because he says there in verse 10, he is the head. We're complete in him. And he adds, who is the head? He's over all principality and power. In other words, the one living in us. That's the point. The one we're filled with, the head of all principality and power, is in us, which puts us in the same position. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2. We've been raised to sit with him in heavenly places. 
with all things under his feet and thus under our feet. And it's all because of, this is a topic in and of itself, our union with Christ. You understand, united with Christ, and he says it's like a marriage union. So a husband and wife, when they're just dating, if she's poor and he's rich, and the old guy dies, it's rich, and the young blonde wants his money, they're not married, guess what she gets? Nothing. She just dies beautiful and broke. But when that union takes place at that altar, right, and they say, I do, whether they mean it or not, in the eyes of the law, what the rich man has is hers, and what she has is his, and they both seem to be happy, right? But the point is, they share equally with what they have. And so with our union with Christ, that is where we have the fullness of God, and we share in his authority over spirits. That's all of us, not just certain people. We've got to believe that. And he uses in him. That's what those in him words are talking about. In union with Christ. That's where all of our authority and power come from. In union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that union it shows in verse 11. And we're getting down to 14 and 15 is what I really want to hit on. But we're getting there. And this is all critical though to understand this. In verse 11, our union with Christ in whom, that's what he's saying there, in union with, in whom also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is a miracle, what he's talking about there. Our evil hearts are changed into righteous ones because Jews entered into covenant at eight days old. How did they enter into God's covenant? By circumcision. And we enter into the new covenant by circumcision also. But not one that is done by surgery or with hands, right? It's a spiritual circumcision that is done by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because we're united to him. And what he's saying there, that circumcision that we're involved in, it cuts off our old man. Cuts him off. That's what's cut off. And we're given a new nature. But God does it. That's why it says it's not one done by man or by man's hands. God himself has to do it or it doesn't happen. And that's what the Jews didn't realize. They were missing that in their reading of the Old Testament. They thought that physical circumcision guaranteed them a right to everything that was God's, made them God's people. And we'll see Wednesday that wasn't the case. Because it was just supposed to represent something that happened on the inside just like baptism. But listen, Deuteronomy 36, God told them this, the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart. He will do it, and he will one day soon. The whole nation, the ones that are left. But the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed. And when God does that, you know what happens when your heart is circumcised by him through the Holy Spirit? He says to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. If you don't really have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't been born again. It doesn't matter what you prayed. That is what should happen when your heart is circumcised. You go from hating God to loving God, to loving specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But when God does that, he says, you will love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul. Why? That you may live. Deuteronomy 30. Six. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 2, 28. He says, For he is not a Jew 
which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And it says the praise is of God because he is the one that does it. And so we give him the credit for our changed heart. So we need to realize that only God can circumcise our hearts or the hearts of somebody we want to see saved. So it's never, as we know, I'm not saying anything you don't know, but I'm going to say it again. It's not by good works, fasting, praying, good intentions. None of that gets you a circumcised heart. It's only by the Spirit of God, supernaturally, doing it. So he moves on in verse 12. So he says that's what's happened with circumcision, and he begins to talk about baptism. Buried with him, there's our union with him. Through our union with him, we're buried with him in baptism, wherein also you were risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So that baptism that we experienced is a symbol of something that actually happened inwardly through our faith. Our past is depicted when we go down in those waters, right? And when we're raised up out of those waters, it shows what our faith has accomplished through the power of God. We're raised to walk in newness of life. So God has raised us from dead to life. The one that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that's what he's saying there in verse 12. And that's Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we are buried with him. That's our union again by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that should be our walk every day. Newness of life. Lisa was cutting my hair yesterday and we got to talking. And she said, you know, if you haven't, and, and some people have gotten away from this, but when you are not committed in your heart and in your life to living to please the Lord, to walk in that newness of life, things don't go well for you. You lose your joy. You lose your outlook. You lose your purpose. But if you'll just renew your heart, bring your heart back, pray to God, get on your knees. People suffering from depression because this walk just for them is just has no meaning anymore. Get on your knees. And ask God to circumcise your heart because maybe it's gotten hard. Recommit your life. And then all of a sudden, things take on new meaning. Joy comes back, I'm telling you. <laughs> your purpose comes back. Because how can walking in newness of life ever be boring? Honestly, how can it be boring or aimless? Either one. And sometimes I just think that needs to happen. Moving on to verse 13, just kind of walking through there. Paul reminds them what? He says, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. He tells them they were dead in their sin, as helpless and lifeless as a corpse. That's how we were, all of us, everybody in this room. The uncircumcision of the flesh. He's reminding them that they were cut off from the life of God. And so you're in Colossians. Just turn back a couple books to Ephesians 2. And look what he says to the Gentiles here. Ephesians 2, verse 11. He tells them to remember something. We preached a message on remembering here not too long ago. Paul says, wherefore, remember. And we all need to remember that 
you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And look what he says. This is us. Verse 12, that at that time, before we knew the Lord, we were what? Without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. And look what it says there. This was us having no hope and without God in the world. Now, we might not have looked at us ourselves that way, but that's what God's how God says we were. But praise God for his mercy, huh? But we were totally dead and hopeless. That's what he's telling us, without hope and without God in the world. What has he done for us? What did he do for the Colossians? That's what he's trying to remind them of here in verse 13. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcisions of your flesh. He said he's done what? He's quickened us together, made us together alive together with Christ. When he raised him from the dead, that was when we were with him and being raised from the dead. He gave them life like he gave us. How does he do that? He breathed on us by his spirit. That's what John 3 says, and gave us life. And the second thing that he did, it says there in verse 13, made us alive together with him. And this is no small thing. It says, having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses. That is a tremendous statement that we should never get over. He made us alive, and when he did that, he forgave us all trespasses. So you think about that. God did not hold anything against us. Nothing of our past is held against us. Every wicked thing we ever did is forgiven. And I'll tell you, I know this for all of us. No matter how good you think you were growing up, even growing up in this church, that we have all done things. Just see how tremendous that is, that if people knew about it, we would be totally embarrassed. And if I knew some things about some people in here, I would be shocked. I can't imagine you would ever think something like it, because that's what goes on with us, right? In the secret chambers of our minds and hearts sometimes, as saints, but especially before we ever knew the Lord. You know, there was a track in... It's still one of my favorite tracks. Chick Track, his first one, it was called This Was Your Life. And in that track, he shows somebody that dies as a sinner and comes before the judgment seat of Christ. And his life is shown on a big screen TV for all the world to see. And as things come up there that this man did from the time he was a little kid all the way up to the time he died, he is like, oh, please don't show that. Oh, don't show that. Is that how you would be? But listen, for us, he's saying he's forgiven all of that. None of that's going to be shown on a big screen TV, praise the Lord, right? That is a blessing. It really is. And Psalm 103 says this, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. And like as a father pities his children, so the Lord has pity on anyone that will fear him, no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked you've been, what you've done this week. You know you're not right with God, never have been. Just grew up in church. 
And he says he'll pity you if you'll fear him and just get on your knees and ask him to forgive you. I mean, we heard a testimony the other night at my house. Somebody saying they just went on and on and on and sin every day, getting up knowing they're not right with God. Had that burden weighing on them, weighing on them, weighing on them. Until finally God granted them repentance and they said it was lifted off. That burden's taken away. He's forgiven all those iniquities. And that's what he's done. And that should be the joy of our life. <laughs> it should never cease. Forgiven. And so verses 14 and 15, they tell us two great truths. This is what we're getting to right here. Two great truths about the cross, which is what we're going to recognize today in our communion service. And the first in verse 14 is that sin is pictured as a great debt that we owe God. Verse 14, he says this, that he has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The handwriting of ordinances. And that word for handwriting, what it was, there was a handwritten document specifying a record of debts. That's what they had back then. That's what that word means. And ordinances are rules and regulations that were supposed to be observed. And so Paul's painting a picture here for us of the great debt of sin we had accumulated either through that we knew what the Ten Commandments were or we've got that law is written, it says, about the heathen. It's still written on their hearts. That it's not right to sleep with somebody else's wife. That it's not right to take something that doesn't belong to you. You don't have to teach your children that. They got guilt from the age of two when you confront them with that, right? That it's not right to lie. And on and on and on. And our conscience would tell us to do right, as Brother Hamilton said so many times, and not do wrong, and we would do it anyway. Doing it over and over and over. And that handwritten document there, that handwriting that's recording our sins, it just kept getting longer and longer. Daily, more being written on there, our debt of sin. And for some in here, the paper was running out. The heavenly paper. Send them to Walmart to get some more. It's spiritual Walmart. And so as that song says, we owed a debt that we could not pay. And Paul's painting the picture here of a handwritten debt that was ready to give all of us an eternal sentence of hell by the judge of the universe. Because our debts were condemning us, crying out for justice. Because he says here, the blotting the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, against us, contrary to us, hostile to us. So this record of our sins was not in our favor. It was hostile to us. It was opposing us. And it was there waiting for us. But what's the Lord Jesus done for us? It says, verse 14, that he's done what? He's blotted it all out. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And that means to wipe it out. Literally, the word means to remove as if to leave no trace. To cause to disappear by wiping. In other words... To use our vernacular, the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross totally wiped our slate clean. We had this list of sins three miles long staring at us. A debt that we could never pay. We're going to have to give an account for. And he literally wiped it all out. 
destroyed it on the cross. And that same language is used by Peter when he preached to the Jews in Acts 3.19. He says, repent therefore and return that your sins may be blotted out or wiped away. That's what he told them. In order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I like the way Isaiah worded it. In Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But what does he say there in verse 14? He blotted it out. He wiped out that handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, against us, opposing it. And it said he took it out of the way. Literally, he took it out of the midst. That document is no longer in our presence. And it was right there. We were holding that baby, getting ready to get sentenced. And he's saying it's taken out of the way taken away from our midst. Why? Because where was it taken to? The cross. Nailed to the cross is what he said. All of our sins were nailed in him. Every sin, if you believe it, that you ever committed was nailed to the cross in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see that? Can you see that every sin, every wicked thing, you'd be totally embarrassed, was nailed to that cross? Nailed there, permanently, canceled forever. The IOU we owed, that long IOU has been canceled forever because it was nailed to the cross. And so listen, some sinners, they begin to pay their debt before they reach eternity, don't they? And in eternity, they're going to start paying it and it will never be paid. That's why hell is eternal. That debt is bigger than we would ever imagine. You can never pay it off. That's why it lasts forever. But for us, what is it saying here? Our debt has been paid in full, nailed to the cross, never to be mentioned, taken away, obliterated. And that's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. The debt is paid. Tetelestai. It has been finished, literally is what it means. It means it was paid then and it has ongoing consequences. For everybody that will believe, all of us, all of our debt has been paid. And so we come to verse 15. So we just learned that the cross has canceled our debt. It's been paid. But what about our enemies? What about our enemies? That's what verse 15 says. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over in it, talking about the cross. Because we look now and we think, man, that doesn't seem to be the case, does it? Seem like the devil and his cohorts are alive and well and just increasing more and more in power, doesn't it? But it says here that they have been spoiled. And that word for spoiled, having spoiled principalities and powers, means they've been disarmed. Their power over Christians, over believers, has been completely removed. They're defeated warriors, they've been stripped naked. It's what it's saying there. Oh, have all their power over us. You got to think about that. Here's a warrior armed and to the teeth. The Bible says now because of the cross, they've been stripped naked. It's concerning us. And it goes on to say he made a show of them openly. And what's that saying is he held up the demonic forces against us to public contempt. To make a show of them openly. The Greek word means to disgrace. He disgraced them because... 
The same thing was said about when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant and he hadn't done it. Matthew 1, it says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. It's the same word. Made a show of them openly. He desired to put her away secretly. So Joseph didn't want to openly disgrace Mary. But the Lord Jesus Christ openly disgraced the powers of darkness on the cross. That's what verse 15 is telling us. They were disgraced, humiliated, and destroyed. They thought they had done that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it appeared like total defeat if you were there on that day, right? And it says at the end of Luke, when the people that were there observing everything, it said they walked away beating their breast. That means they're sorry for what happened. They're like, man, what a waste of a life. What a waste of a death. It sure didn't seem like victory had happened there, which is what we're reading here in chapter 15 on the cross. It seemed like a tragic loss. But in reality, when the resurrection occurred, those spirits, forces, that thought they had defeated the Lord and all those people, they fully realized that they were the ones that had been publicly humiliated and disgraced by the cross. That's what Paul's saying here. The reality of the situation of the cross was not what it appeared at the time. So you're looking at the cross, and there you see Jesus writhing in severe pain, being hanging there naked, totally humiliated, beaten, a crown of thorns on his head, being mocked that he's the king of the Jews, crucified in weakness, so it's not what the world would look at and say, well, wow, here's a conquering warrior humiliating his enemies, right? Because they were saying this, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, what he says he is, let him come down from the cross and we'll, we'll believe him. So he didn't appear to be the king of Israel, the conquering king of Israel, the seed of David on that cross, did he? Let alone the God of the universe. And Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But Paul's telling us here, it was the wicked spiritual forces of the universe. They were the ones that were spoiled, that were stripped, that were disgraced and triumphed over. So see this word here in verse 15? Having... Spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And that word triumphing over is an interesting word. Because what that depicts and what that describes is the triumphal procession that occurred when a Roman military had victory over another army. So when that took place, when a general would defeat another army from another nation, the opposing forces, and won the battle... They would have, it would last three days, a triumphal procession through the city of Rome. And the successful general would be the one that led the procession. And his men, they'd be following right behind him, singing hymns of victory. I've got the victory in the name of whoever. Jesus. For us, right? And they'd be happy. Oh, they'd be jubilant. Oh, man, we just defeated these people, and they're coming up on the rear. Because on the rear, after that successful army and the general would be the defeated king and what was ever left of his army, the surviving warriors. And as they're walking through there, they would be subdued and very disheartened because the end of that march wasn't going to be a good one for them. And all along the way, the crowds are jeering at them, 
giving them a hard way to go. They're just a spectacle, and they're ridiculed by the people. That's what went on there, and that's what this word is telling us. One word is telling us that's what it meant. Because at the end of that march, when they had that triumphal procession, you know what happened to all those people that got defeated? The opposing army, they were killed. Just like Satan will be cast into the lake of fire in the end. And so Jesus, this is what this is telling us. Triumphing over them in the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, has led a triumphal procession with Satan and his cohorts in the rear. You know where that's at? Ephesians 4. When he ascended up on high, it says there, he led captivity captive. Or the NAU says he led captive a host of captives. And that's a quote. Jennifer Carrick quoted it during our praise. You didn't think I was listening back there. I was. Psalm 68. That's where that led captivity captive is quoted from. God gives us victory over our enemies through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those are military terms there. Led captivity captive. Captivity to capture in war and captive are prisoners of war. So Satan and his forces on that cross were subdued before our Lord, awaiting execution. That's where they're at. And they are under his feet right now. And under our feet too. So it hasn't been fully manifested their defeat, but one day it will. And it seems right now that they, like I said, they're alive and well, doesn't it? And it seems like their influence on this earth is growing more and more. But what Colossians and what I hope we're getting at today is what he's telling them and what he's telling us is we as Christians do not need to fear them and their powers, right? Because they've been conquered at the cross. The prison doors are open, and that's the gospel that we have to preach. No one needs to be oppressed by the devil here or that unregenerate world if they'll repent and come under the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. So the good news that we're seeing here in verses 14 and 15 and all three, this is our debt has been canceled. It's been paid. And Satan's power in our life has been what? It's been spoiled or stripped. That's what those word means. We no longer have to fear him. And yet sometimes we do. And Jesus, getting back to what he said in Luke 10, he said, I beheld Satan as light, lightning fall from heaven. And he says, behold, look. I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So honestly, based on what the Bible says, do we need to live in fear of what evil spirits might do to us or our families? Do we? <laughs> and I quoted this last week too, but... In light of this, we're saying it's a military victory in a sense that he won over these powers of darkness. And Luke 11 says, when a strong man armed, speaking of the devil, keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, speaking of Jesus, and overcome him, and he takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoil. So we were in the bondage to the strong man, and he was keeping us in his palace, right? But praise God, one stronger than he came along and overcame him. And so based on what we're looking at today, where did that happen? On the cross, in his death. That's where he was defeated. And that is where he took all of the devil's armor that he could hold us in bondage, was taken away from him, stripped from him, spoiled from him, 
right there on that cross. That's where it took place. That's what we need to see. He's come upon Satan, overcame him, stripped his armor, spoiled him. So as a man said, the unseen powers and invisible forces that had dominated and determined so much of our lives, we no longer need to be afraid of. Because that's the way the world operates in fear. They don't know that it's necessarily spirits, but they're afraid of what's going to come down the pipe next to them, whether it's economically, physically, their health, whatever. Mental problems with their kids, it's all defeated, though, at the cross for us. And what we need to see is... It's not a victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has yet to win, but it is a victory over the devil that he has already won. Right? So for us then, it's not just something we celebrate and sing about, is it? It's something then that we in this church need to experience in our lives, make it real and experience in our lives. We don't need to fear what the devil can do to us next. So if you would, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And it says, Therefore, as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death Jesus might do what? destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil does it say there that he has destroyed him through his death in verse 15 it says and deliver them that's us who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage for truly he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of Abraham wherein in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to help us whenever we're tempted. To succor, that's what that word means. He's able to succor them that are tempted. So if we're tempted to give in to the spiritual forces of darkness in any way, he's saying he's there to help us because he has destroyed them, destroyed the devil. He's there to help us for this purpose. Was the Son of God manifested? What was the purpose? That he might destroy the works of the devil. And that's what we're reading here in 2.15, right? So how do we experience that? How do we experience that in our lives? How do we make that real? We've already talked about it for two weeks. What does Paul say? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We have to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So he's not left us helpless. He's not given us a theory or a doctrine and said, well, there it is. Figure it out for yourselves. He's told us this is how you come against the devil. You've got to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That means what? So it doesn't mean we got this theory and we could just go around rebuking this, that, or the other and not spend time in prayer, Right? not know the Lord, not know that that power is manifest in our lives. We've got to spend time in his word and in prayer to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then what else do we have to do? Is God going to come down and put that armor on us himself? What does he say? He says, we've got to put it on. We've got a responsibility in this, don't we? So if we're not going to put on that armor and fight, we can't say, well, it doesn't work. Because I'm telling you, it does work. Everything we've been taught that Brother Hamilton taught from the Word of God 
This faith message, however you want to say it, some people don't like all the faith. Look, the truths of the Bible that we've been taught, how we can trust the Lord, how we can walk in holiness, how we don't have to be sub subject to the devil. Because a lot of the sins, lust and all that, it's spirits you have to resist. And if you don't resist and just give in to them, you can't complain and say, man, this message doesn't work. We need to move on to something else. We've got some new light. That's what we talked about at the beginning. They're going to try to come in, beware of this vain philosophy and empty deceit, that there's some other way that God's going to manifest his power in your life other than just trust in him, that he somehow does things other than the spirit of God. That is the only way God operates. That's the only way he grants deliverance, healing, victory over sin is supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the New Testament. So there's a lot of churches out there that teach it comes from other ways. We need other help besides the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling them here in Colossians, he is supreme. He is all we need. The cross has given us everything we need. Victory. That's what it is. The armor of God is given. So a spirit of depression is trying to come over you. You can't give in to that. Man, I'm just not feeling good. I'm having a bad day and I'm just kind of got the blues. Oh, man, that's not what the Bible says, right? You got to fight against that. Now, you may be going through something, all right, but start praying in tongues. Start warring. Start looking for the victory. And Jesus will get you through that by his Holy Spirit or a spirit of fear tries to come on you to keep you from taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just give in to that. You've got to fight against that, right? And realize that thing is a defeated foe. He has no right over me to bind me to keep me from doing God's will. He has been defeated, stripped of his power at the cross. I'm not going to let him bind me. Depression, fear, or disease. Living in dread fear of this disease that could come on me. It's going to overtake me and, and kill me and waste me away. Is that what we read? Is our writing up there? Maybe we need to get it refreshed and have a little darker print. But doesn't it still say, surely? There's no doubt about it. Surely he has what? Born our pains. Read it right there. And carried our diseases. Is that not true? <laughs> it is true. And it happened where? Where did all that happen? Thank you, man. You guys, that was a good response. Praise the Lord. I like that. On the cross, it can still be trusted. Praise God, he's a risen Savior, right? It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? He is the one that reigns supreme. It's his word. It's his victory. He's the one we serve. He wants to demonstrate his power in our lives. Amen. All right, well, we'll look at one last verse. Look over in Philippians 2. Begin in verse Five. Let this mind be in you, which also, Philippians 2, 5, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven 
spiritual beings in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the cross and that humiliation, he will be eternally, it's begun now, he will be eternally exalted in heaven, will he not? And the devil, because of what happened in the cross, will be eternally disgraced and humiliated, eternally that way, right? All to the glory of God the Father. And he wants that glory to be in our lives. And so we have got so much to be thankful for, for what Jesus did for us on the cross today. And that's what we're celebrating at the communion table. So much to be thankful for, for what he did and what he's given us and what he's released us from, the power of darkness and that debt, that long list of sins that just was sending all of us to the pit, wiped it out, canceled it, nailed it to the cross and gave us victory over the devil and all of how he's trying to destroy our lives. And man, that is something to praise God for. Amen? It really is. So we just need to pray and for, ask him for the grace to trust him more, as the song says, don't we? Because all of us can trust him more than we do. I mean, I think at times, God, give me the grace that I can trust you and see more of what you provided and the power and the authority I have that you've given me for your glory. Not to have something to boast about, but that's what our prayer needs to be because he agonized on that cross in a way we'll never understand to give us life. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us today, and, and we especially thank you, Father, for what was accomplished on the cross in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he canceled that heavy debt sin that we carried and took it off of us, took it off our back, nailed it to the cross that we no longer had to carry it and the weight of it, and that also on that cross, Father, he has given us victory over all principalities and powers, all evil spirits that would do us harm and that would affect our lives. And we just thank you, Lord, for what you've done and what you've shown us today. And I just ask you'll make it more real to all of us in the days ahead. And thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.